This is Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield, in for Dave Ross. Kroger and Albertsons, their monopoly-making merger is still moving forward despite the efforts of state attorneys general, including our own. But this morning, we're learning there is a new group of private consumers suing to stop the deal and the $4 billion dividend for shareholders. So let's bring in Heather Lally. She's the editor-in-chief of Winsight Grocery Business. Heather, good morning. Let's good start. Morning. Let's start with this this news this morning of this new lawsuit to try and stop this mega merger. Yeah, it is interesting to see uh, consumers um, expressing themselves. Uh, we were just talking about this in our news meeting yesterday. I tend to look at it as sort of a, you know, the next iteration of a petition. Like, we are protesting this. We are vociferous in our opposition to this merger. I don't know that we're going to see it go really far or have a huge impact. Of course, this is in be- being investigated, you know, by all levels, um, federal and state uh, governments. I don't know that this consumer lawsuit, however, is going to have a huge impact on the outcome. That's kind of what we're hearing, too. I'm wondering, though, Mm -hmm. thinking that this is probably going to go through, that means, you know, in Seattle and Western Washington, we have Albertsons, we have Safeway, we have QFC, we have Fred Meyer. I mean, that's so many brands that are going to be under one, you know, parent company. That's got to mean closures of grocery stores. You know, unclear right now. I think your assumption is correct. And Albertsons, you know, when they um, submitted this proposed merger, said they're going to develop this company with a name that I love called Spinco, uh, in which they would spin off um, these competing stores uh, potentially and create sort of a wholly owned subsidiary. Grocery is such a regional game and folks are so loyal to their you know, regional right. players and regional banners that maybe you don't even understand that Kroger, you know, is the owner of, of some of these stores that you shop at in, in Seattle. So I think there will be some consolidation. Uh, there will be potentially a chance for some of these smaller regional folks um, or smaller national players to gobble up some of these stores that are in limbo because of this merger. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Can we talk also about the state of the grocery business in general? I mean, for example, what is happening with store shelves? At the beginning of the pandemic, I would obviously go to the grocery store and uh, very obviously because of all the supply chain issues, there were just just giant empty shelves almost every aisle. But I just went yesterday to the Safeway down the street in my neighborhood and there are still giant empty shelves. I, I don't understand why I thought inflation was easing. I thought the supply chain was figured out. Why why is the grocery business still seeing these issues? Right. There is just still so much flux uh, going on in this industry. Things have definitely not normalized. And then we have these outside forces um, that are impacting things like, you know, we just saw the recent issue with eggs. I don't know if you an an egg buyer. Oh, I saw the price. (laughs) Yeah, they're like seven, eight dollars a dozen. And that was because of a variety of factors. Um, including a, a, a big bird flu outbreak that impacted the supply. And then this all was, uh, you know, laid on top of the fact that everyone wanted to do their holiday baking. And so there was a huge demand for eggs at the same time that the supply was lowered, you know, driving up place prices. I did not do very well in college economics, but I even I can understand that they they say, uh, you know, that the prices are starting to come down on eggs specifically because the demand lowered so much during the time in which they were seven, eight, nine dollars a carton. Um, but we're not necessarily necessarily seeing that price change reflected in grocery stores just yet because of the lag time. As far as the others, 
supply issues. There just continue to be these rolling supply chain difficulties um, for a variety of reasons, including, you know, labor and um, shipping delays and all sorts of, uh, you know, missing links in this very complicated chain. Uh, Just uh, uh, do you think that when folks, consumers go to the grocery store and they see that, that the danger is that it could, at least for the brick and mortar stores, drive folks to Amazon Fresh, for example. I mean, if I go into Safeway and they have just bare shelves still, that's what I think is like, oh, well, I'll just get out my Amazon app and have it delivered to my house. Sure. Um, yes. And you know who has seen tremendous growth during this kind of topsy-turvy time are the warehouse clubs, you know, like oh, yeah. DJs and Sam's Club. I don't know that they have been immune from these supply chain issues, but perhaps they have been potentially less impacted. So they have seen huge growth in their uh, membership numbers. Um, They are opening a lot of new stores. Uh, Another thing that's been interesting is that I think folks right now are so driven by value. Um, So, you know, Walmart just continues to grow. And Walmart has said that they are seeing more shoppers who make over $100,000 a year wealthier shoppers, you know, who are coming in just looking for deals. And the same thing has been said by dollar stores, which it kind of surprised me that dollar stores are seeing, you know, higher income shoppers who are just coming in looking for deals right now. Yeah, really interesting trends. I, I Another trend that I, again, noticed in my recent trip to, it was to Fred Meyer, to be honest, and and everything, but, but it's happening everywhere. Everything in our area, it seems like more and more is now in these glass showcases. Mm-hmm. Like I needed to to get a Oral-B toothbrush refill and I had to have somebody paged over to open up with a big key and lock and to get it out for me. Why why is all of, I mean, shoplifting is that bad? Well, yeah. So the margins at grocery stores are so slim. So, you know, that impacts thing, you know, every item that is stolen uh, has an impact on the bottom line. But retailers have said recently that they are seeing a massive uptick in retail theft. Target expressed this during their recent earnings call, just hundreds of millions of dollars, both in-store theft, but also like organized retail theft online. Walmart's CEO recently said they might have to close stores that are so deeply impacted by crime um, because it is, is uh, you know, such a detriment to their balance sheet. So apparently they are trying to do all sorts of things to mitigate this. I would say those lockboxes for me are, you know, a bit of a turnoff if you're busy and you got to go flag yeah. somebody down to get your toothbrush. Same. Um, so I wonder... I wonder if in trying to preserve, uh, you know, those sales, if they are, in fact, losing sales at the same time. I think it's very interesting. Well, Heather Lally, we appreciate your time. Editor in chief of Winsight Grocery Business. Thank you. And I hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you. You too. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian, Felix Spinell, joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. A quick look at the stories behind local places and things. This week, even though they are thousands of miles from the Pacific Northwest, there are something familiar sounding about the communities of Tacoma Park and Mount Rainier. Felix, good morning. Morning, Travis. Let's go right to some of the audio evidence for this little mystery. Now, this is what you hear when you dial City Hall for a small town near Washington, D.C. in the state of Maryland. Hello. Thank you for calling the city of Mount Rainier. Our hours of operation are 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. 
Yes, that's right. The city of Mount Rainier, Maryland. We're going to come back to that part of the story in a moment. Now, the other Maryland city we're talking about this morning is Tacoma Park. It dates to the 1880s. It's a planned city created by a real estate investor from New York named Benjamin Franklin Gilbert to serve as a suburb for government workers since it was just a few miles from Washington, D.C. The nearby train station was originally called Brightwood, but the area was actually 100 feet higher than the swampy land of the nation's capital, giving it a mildly mountainous quality. <laughs> yes. I'm exaggerating a little bit. But Jim Douglas, archivist with a group called Historic Tacoma, told me that this elevated feeling provided some naming inspiration. This friend of Gilbert's named Ida Sumi is said to have suggested to Gilbert at dinner one night, why don't you call your new place Tahoma. This being an Indian word meaning high up, heavenly place kind of thing. Now, Tahoma and Tacoma are variations on the indigenous name from Mount Rainier, though that high up and heavenly place definition might be a little apocryphal. And our own city of Tacoma was on the rise around the same time as a real estate development of the Northern Pacific Railroad. But if there's a direct connection between Gilbert's friend and the Northwest, I certainly couldn't find it. And Benjamin Franklin Gilbert spelled Tacoma with a K instead of a C, and then he added park to make it sound more marketable as a place to live. Now, Jim Douglas, who's originally from Cheney over in eastern Washington, by the way, he says not many people nowadays know about this history, though there is at least one visual clue still in plain sight. Oh, yeah, it's the city seal. If you go to this, for example, the city of Tacoma Park website, you'll see the seal with the, the kind of the orange mountain and the sun rays and stuff. And that that dates back to 1890 and when this town was first formed in one of the, I think, the first or second town council meeting, they adopted that format for the city seal and it's stayed that way ever since. Now, just five miles southeast of Tacoma Park is the city of Mount Rainier, Maryland. I was able to find only one tantalizing clue as to why a D.C. suburb would be named for a Cascade volcano. Now, I'm just going to read this from an old book about Maryland place names. Quote, many years ago, several army officers from Seattle subdivided 100 acres here and named them Mount Rainier for the 14,000-foot mountain in their home state. In 1910, the name became official. Now, I'd love to know more about those Army officers. I couldn't track anything down. Um, one last fact from that same source. In the early years, the unpaved streets meant that in the rainy season, the town's nickname was Mud Rainier. Now, I'd love to know more about all the, about this. It's a little bit of a mystery. One last little fact. Pronunciation of the town in Maryland might be slightly different. It might be that they say Rainier. In that audio we played at the top, I couldn't quite hear a difference, but people have told me there is a slight difference in how you say Mount Rainier, Washington, and Mount Rainier, Maryland. I can almost hear it. I can almost hear the difference. Very subtle. Felix Spinell there. You can find all of Felix's stories on MyNorthwest.com. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. A terrifying story this past week. A woman who says she was attacked and punched in the face while jogging on the Howe Street stairs in Seattle's North Capitol Hill neighborhood. And she says her interaction with Seattle police after the attack was a very negative one. Cairo News Radio's Catherine Stone joining us live in studio this morning. Kate, this story is terrifying. Yeah, Travis, and it particularly hits home for me because I live very close to those stairs, and as do you. Yeah. And I run them with my friends very often, and that's the same thing Emily, who asked us not to use her last name, was doing last Friday morning with her friend. She told me they run the stairs every week. She says she was passing her friend on the stairs. She was going down. Her friend was going up. Usually they give each other a high five, but this time was different. She had her pepper spray in her hand and she kind of slid it into my hand instead of giving me a high five. Uh, And that was my first kind of realization of like something's happening, like she was freaked out by something. 
So her friend headed up the stairs, Emily headed down, and that's when she saw a man approach her and start following her. As soon as I turned and made eye contact, I realized his fist was coming at my face. Emily tells me he punched her and pulled her to the ground. She fought back as he grabbed at her clothes. Picking and yelling, and I just was focused on this pepper spray, so I aimed it at his face, and I managed to, I think, spray him in the face, and I just kept, like, yelling and trying to get him. So the man ran off. Emily ran towards her friend, who had been turned the other way, missed the entire thing. Emily filed a report with Seattle police, but... She says it was not a good experience. The officer was super blunt and it was just kind of, I like gave him all the details, but he was not empathetic at all. And I just, he was like, what's your address? What's your name? Uh, Like what happened? Be clear about what happened, Um, which is not very fun to respond to when you've just been attacked. And then SPD sent Emily a text survey asking her about their response to her report. And as we previously reported, this 911 text survey just got rolled out a couple of weeks ago. It's brand new. Seattle police said they hoped it would, quote, increase communication and provide enhanced customer service. That was obviously not Emily's experience. And she told me that's why she filled out the survey. It's it's so interesting to hear her perspective and then that reaction. But this is just one person's story. But the situation raises a couple of really interesting interesting points. If you're a victim of an attack here, are you going to be willing to fill out a survey after you experience something, you know, immediately afterwards? And if the experience is not a positive one, well, what does SBD plan to do? Will they use that feedback in any way? Yeah, that's a great question. And I decided to ask Seattle Police Chief Adrian Diaz about that this week. And this is what he told me. When you do have a situation where somebody doesn't feel like they've got the, the, the best connection, that's where we need to figure out how we, you know, we learn from those situations and make sure that we're providing um, a better response. And this is particularly important when you look at violent crime is at a 15 year high. The 2022 Seattle crime report was just released this week. Sexual assault cases were higher last year compared to 2020 and 2021. And those are just the ones that are being reported. So I asked Seattle police what they're doing about that. In sexual assault cases, uh, we've actually are trying to do a a system wide training for all of our officers on trauma informed practices. And in cases like this one, what he thinks the department can learn from those survey results. Is that the purpose of the survey, to find out where those weak points are and work on them? Yeah, and, uh, you know, we actually get quite a bit of feedback just from a variety of different surveys. We use this as one avenue. And Travis, in this case, I've been following Seattle police and the King County prosecutor's office very closely, and they say they have not yet named a suspect for this case. They did arrest a man for a sexual assault in Green Lake last week, and the type of attack was very similar, and they are looking into whether that suspect is connected to the House Street Stairs attack. And to be clear, although police have not announced an arrest in this case, they are still making arrests, and the King County prosecutor's really trying to bring forth charges in cases like this one, and and that's happening. the chief acknowledged that to you. He did. And I'm certainly not implying that Seattle police are not responding to these threats. I think the importance of this story is that people don't just want to see police be responsive to crimes, but also to victims of crime. They want to know law enforcement is responsive to the needs of the community and that survivors of attacks will be treated with empathy and respect every single time. And as I said, this one hits home for me because I've been in that same position. I have been attacked while out running. And Emily told me this, that she wants to feel safe in her neighborhood. Right now, she does not. And she does not plan to go back to those stairs, at least for now. And I can't say I blame her.
Seattle police have not released any survey results yet, but Chief Diaz told me the majority report a positive experience. But obviously, he acknowledges there's more work to do, and I think this situation proves that. I, I know Chief Diaz pretty well. I've known him for a long time. I know he really cares about these kinds of things. So it'll be interesting to see when they do have the data and you do a follow-up for us, what sort of policies he puts into place. Because, again, just knowing his what he's done in the past, this is something he takes very seriously. I agree. Um, but I think SPD has also acknowledged that trauma response is one thing that they plan to work on in the coming year and years, especially given what's happened the last few years with the community. Catherine Stone, really interesting report this morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank live. you. Coming down last night, the Department of Justice has subpoenaed former Vice President Mike Pence. There are so many investigations into people in the Trump orbit that it can be difficult to keep track of all of them and what this all means. So we called up Face the Nation moderator Margaret Brennan. There are only really two that the special counsel Jack Smith is handling here when it comes to the 45th president. And both of those involve uh, one classified documents, the 300 classified documents that were taken from Mar-a-Lago that the former president refused to hand back over to U.S. officials. Um, and then there is the uh, investigation as it relates to the 2020 election and the schemes to try to change the outcome of it. We know that it's one of those two items that the special counsel wants to talk to Vice President Mike Pence about. Uh, one would imagine uh, perhaps the 2020 election, uh, because, of course, uh, it was a huge pressure campaign, as we have learned, um, on the vice president to take his ceremonial role of certifying the election and somehow use it. Uh, to change the results on January the 6th, that, that same day of the violent siege uh, of the U.S. Capitol. So that is what the Justice Department, um, we know, is looking into. Um, and so the subpoena is interesting. It will raise questions, of course, about executive privilege, given uh, the, the office <laughs> that, that Mr. Pence held at the time. Um, but it also promises to perhaps get more answers than the congressional investigation did. I also want to ask you, last week we were beginning to scratch our heads about the giant balloon that was floating over the U.S., over Montana initially. But this has become a full-on international debacle, a diplomatic incident. Where does that stand? And does this continue to escalate our situation with China? Well, it, you're right. It, it has become a, a diplomatic crisis. Um, the Biden administration is trying to prevent it from escalating further, but you know, they they called off that trip the Secretary of State was supposed to be making to Beijing because of this balloon, um, this surveillance uh, uh, balloon. And that trip was meant to build a floor under a relationship that's been rough for years. Um, and the fact now that the defense minister won't accept a call from our defense secretary of state, uh, Lloyd Austin, indicates tension is, is, is very high. And that raises the risk of miscommunication. At a bare minimum, the Biden administration wants to keep lines of communication open. Um, but when it comes to uh, the broader concern about this surveillance, we'll talk about that Sunday with John Tester, Democrat from Montana, who had this flying over his state and is livid about it. 
Um, Mike McCall, Republican from Texas, is on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And we know that um, there have been classified briefings to Congress uh, to explain to them what is known about the surveillance program going back for about a decade um, where China has used these balloons to hover over sensitive locations in the uh, expectation that it's it's harder to discover the balloons by radar and that they can stay in one place rather than moving around as satellites can. Yeah, this story is not going away. I want to ask you also, we're coming up on one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Does the Republican-controlled House now change the level of U.S. support for the Ukrainian government? Well, I know that uh, Chair Mike McCall, he, he chairs that House Foreign Affairs Committee uh, has been very clear that he remains extremely committed to helping Ukraine ward off Russian aggression, um, which is a threat to NATO as well. So the leadership on the Republican side is making clear that this uh, won't change. But you do have a, a large number within the conservative sliver of the caucus. I'm thinking of people like Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert, who have said not one more penny should go to Ukraine. Now, on the numbers alone, what the last Congress authorized um, should take funding all the way through September. So this isn't an immediate run out of cash situation, but clearly uh, this is going to be a conversation that may become more complicated with the fact that there is this divide within the Republican Party. Margaret Brennan uh, there from CBS News. And now for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. The Milwaukee Dancing Grannies spread joy by marching in parades around the region. But last year, that joint turned to devastation when a man drove a car through the Christmas parade. This year, they're together again, becoming role models for resilience. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman. 64-year-old Betty Strang of Greenfield, Wisconsin, is getting ready for an anniversary. The anniversary of a terrible day she can neither forget nor remember. I don't remember anything from that day. One year ago, a red SUV tore through a Christmas parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, killing six and injuring more than 60 others, including Betty Strang, who suffered a traumatic brain injury. Betty was part of a dance team called the Milwaukee Dancing Grannies, which lost three members that day, but gained something, too. When I got home from the hospital, I know I emailed the grannies to say I was home. And they were so supportive, like, oh, thank you. We assembled a few of the dancers and found a bond. I knew they were all there for me. Almost like family. And that's what kept me sane. I don't think we could have done it without each other. I really don't. Betty, I'm so glad you're back with us. By March, the grannies were already practicing again. Still recovering, but I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) And this week, they returned to walk the same street in the same parade. For some members, like Betty, who at one point couldn't imagine leaving the house, this coming out was an absolute triumph. But for all members, the parade was also a chance to send a message. A message to anyone along the route who might be marching down a comeback trail of their own. Think about the grannies. They came back. I can too. I plan to dance with the grannies forever. It's a group of feisty women here, so, you know. Feisty role models of resilience. Who turned out to be much tougher than their pom-poms.
would imply. Steve Hartman, CBS News. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. And now from the G and Ursula Show, weekdays 9 to noon here on Cairo News Radio, G Scott. G, it is always fabulous to see you. Man, it's always good to see you. You you, you know what? Let me just say this before we uh, move on to whatever you're going to talk about. I just want to say that, Travis, you are so important to the city of Seattle. And I think it is absolutely, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this or do this or not, but I'm going to do it anyways. I think that it is tragic that we don't have you either on our airwaves or on our TV every oh. single day. What you bring to this city needs to be talked about more. I'm serious. I'm flat out coming out and just saying it. We need to see and hear you on a daily damn basis. And it's sad that we're getting to miss out on that in 2023. 2023, we don't have Travis on the airwaves and on the TV sets every day. All right. That was amazing. That was amazing. I, I thank you. I feel the same about you. The fact that I do hear you on a daily basis and your your takes on things, your smart, your analysis. I love your show. I love you. Appreciate We're you. lucky to have you. Appreciate you. So let's pick your brain about this. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not a Super Bowl watcher. I might go skiing this Sunday instead. Am I wrong? Am I the only one who doesn't observe Super Bowl Sunday? At least this one? You want to keep something a secret from um, Yeah, shh. Whisper in my ear. I care less about football the older that I get. Ah, yes. And if you're somebody that's like, you know what? I'm going to go to Costco. I ain't mad at you. Because right. you know Costco on a Sunday be packed, and this yeah. is a good opportunity. Right. If you're someone that's like, you know what? I'm going to take advantage of flying during the Super Bowl because you got to get a good deal. Yeah. Go do it. And in your case, you're going to go skiing? Yeah. Man, it ain't going to be that. Well, it ain't going to be that many brothers on a slope anyways. <laughs> but don't you worry about it. Go skiing. <laughs> All I care about for this Sunday yeah. is this. I want the Eagles to win. Yep. I want to enjoy the company I'm going to be with. Yep. I got some friends and family. <laughs> and Rihanna at halftime. Right. Rihanna. <laughs> really? It. Yeah. That's all I care about. Thank you for validating me. You're good. <laughs> I'm very appreciated. Show. And Okay, so what if, the, what if Kansas City wins? I won't lose sleep. I'll be in here on Monday. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, okay. Matter of fact, earlier in the week, I was fighting for that there needed to be a, a holiday for the Monday after the Super Bowl. Yeah. I changed my mind. Oh, no, oh, I love this. I go to work on Monday. Okay, good. I'm, not, I'm <laughs> going to work on Monday. I'm not doing the activities. I'm not getting, um, <clears throat> enjoying and dope beverages like I used yeah. to anymore. Oh, anyways, because yeah. it so, takes four days to get over that. No doubt. Yeah. So I'm good. No, yeah. no, 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 no doubt about it. Okay, I'm into that. Okay. So I want to ask you another question because we had this conversation earlier this morning about uh-huh. groceries, uh-huh. and we talked to uh, uh, the editor of a grocery trade publication. Okay. And one of my big things this like is this the craziness that I go. Go to the grocery store and everything is locked behind glass. Mm-hmm. I, I was trying to buy like a toothbrush refill for yeah. like my daughter's oral B. They're like twenty dollars okay. for like three of them. That's right. not that's not expensive. I had to page somebody at Fred Meyer to come to the case with their keys and unlock it. What the heck is going on that we have to live like this? Theft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Come down to theft. But I want to say I'm glad you're pointing that out. First, let me start off. It's not a good feeling. No. Okay. Well, (laughs) welcome to black neighborhoods uh, across the city forever, right? When I was younger, it was something that always stood out to me. Now, imagine there's a lot of things that we're thinking as children, as a child growing up, 
that we don't understand yeah. what we're seeing and or are watching, but we just like, mm, something's not right. Well, growing up, I never liked that feeling yeah. of seeing, okay, or you go to the store and your parents or loved ones go to buy a certain type of alcohol, yeah. right? But all of the other alcohols on, uh, is cool, but y'all know what I'm talking about. The the Hennessy and the VSOP and all of those alcohols, yeah. that's locked up, right? Or you go to the bank. You go to the bank and you go to some neighborhoods where the banks, like all the tellers are so freeing and right there approachable, yeah. and then you go to other banks where they're behind the glass. You go to some gas stations where you can just hand your money, and then you go to some gas stations in Chicago in the, in the city where you got they're behind yeah. the steel yep. glass, and you got to hand your money through the little slot. So that feeling that you're talking about is is not a good feeling. But at the same time, I understand now where store owners in some of these neighborhoods right now. They're having to do that, yeah. right? Because, look, we have a problem not just with that, but we have a huge problem right now. We're talking about cars being stolen every single yeah. day. And I think they're going to fix this stolen car problem. The only way to do that is to up the consequence on it, right? Like, you ain't never heard nobody say, hey, man, what you do? Ah, man, I got a felony for a stolen car. Nobody gets felonies for stolen car. Yeah. Change that. You need a felony, fam, because you go and you steal the vehicle of a, of, of a single lady, and she has a vehicle for three to four thousand dollars, right? And she has to get to work, but you stole her car. Yeah. Do you know what it's going to take for that mom to be able to get a vehicle back? You go steal my car, it's fine. Yeah. Matter of fact, good luck, buddy. <laughs> hey, have fun. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? And then the, all the whole complex, everybody gets paid. But anyway, I didn't mean to go on a tangent, but I just wanted to come back to the whole point of, no. It's not a good feeling when you go into the store and things are locked up. As always, your perspective is so appreciated. It makes me think about things differently, makes me remember things, makes me understand things. I, I, I love you. Are you wearing cool socks? I am. Okay, I just want to make sure. Yeah, you can check out my Twitter feed to see him. See you, bro. G. Scott, along with Ursula, 9 to noon, here on Cairo News Radio. Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross. Because of the uh, chat GPT phenomenon, which has sapped so much of my attention lately, I thought we'd call on a couple of information specialists from the University of Washington Center for an Informed Public. And uh, they are Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West, who are famous for the calling bull*** class at the University of Washington, which I, I assume is still a big hit with the students. It is. It is. We, and we, it's a big hit with us. We're having so much fun teaching <laughs> that in the classroom. Yeah, we just finished it in the fall, but it's a year-round event for us, so it yeah. doesn't stop in the fall. All right, so what do you think about ChatGPT, and uh, how do you see this being used in academia? Well, I think it's a very interesting development to be able to produce language that has all of the appearances of being intelligent speech uh, coming from a human being. There's a catch, though, which is that it's mostly nonsense, as I'm sure you've discovered. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there hasn't been a, a, a topic on campus that is you know, captured the attention of faculty and administrators as much as chat GPTs, which is probably the same thing that's happening around society, partly because it has this ability to write supposed student essays. It can look real. It sort of it actually speaking of uh, bullshit, it's probably the biggest uh, it's kind of bullshit out there. It, it actually ca- conveys realness. It's sort of smooth right. language. You know, clean uniform it's, sentences. I, I mean, but, I was amazed. Yeah. I, I was I was prepared for you know some kind of uh, just just stock phrases, but this thing is thinking. I wouldn't go so far to say that it's thinking, which is very interesting. It it certainly 
comes off like a thinking creature. Yeah. Um, but it is just generating what I'd call semantically plausible output. So it doesn't have any underlying knowledge model of how the world works. And it, what's kind of amazing is that at some types of problems, it does so well given such a limited knowledge base. You can think of it, and you know, we talked about this a little bit. Uh, you can think of it as uh, as autocomplete, right? Just a very yeah. fancy form of autocomplete. It's trying to guess what a human might have said. Right. Well, next. its strong point is if you say, for example, uh, write a, a two-person scene about uh, going to the grocery store in the style of Ernest Hemingway. And it will do that with character names and, and, and the whole deal. And it'd be plausible. But you're right. When it, when it comes to, um, to trying to get uh, a facts out of it or have it write a, a fact-based essay, it's, it's pretty weak. So number one issue for you guys as professors uh, are you going to be on the lookout for this now in terms of uh, students trying to use this to cheat? I'm actually doing the opposite. I'm begging the students to try to cheat with it and see how are we you? can try to break it and actually to see what it can do. Um, I want them to engage with it as much as possible to see where its uh, you know weaknesses are, what it does well. I want it to engage yeah. as much as possible, but I know a lot of my f- fellow faculty are very concerned, so they're changing the way they do classes, which isn't that difficult. You can turn off the internet when you do evaluations. You can have them write within class. It, it kind of takes away a little bit of the long written form work. We'll figure out what to do, but we've, we've had these things before. I'm not as worried as some of my colleagues about it, but I'm kind of doing the opposite. I'm, I'm leaning in on it. Let's well, I think see it's a lot of fun it. in a way. You know, we, we had one of our uh, one of our exam questions in our final exam this past fall was to actually take we were, I wrote the question and then I asked ChatGP to answer it and they asked the students to grade ChatGPT's uh-huh. answer. So like, <laughs> what it does is just, it kind of just shifts the way you you teach to really focusing on the skills that are truly human skills, yeah. thinking about the world based on knowledge models. And I think it can, in that way, it can actually improve what we're doing in the classroom quite a bit. Of course, the thing is, it makes it ideal for social media because social media is full of made up stuff. So this can now make up plausible stuff. And this is, this is one of the fears of, uh, I think even some of the developers that it wouldn't be too difficult to, to give this thing, you know, it could open its own multiple Twitter accounts and just start uh, flooding the zone with uh, rumors even worse than, you know, the Russians. That is a big concern. And actually, Carl and I have talked about this a lot, that um, the the concerns in the automation are it's really not necessarily even on social media. I mean, social media is a big deal because it can sort of move collective thought and collective conversation. But what about when it starts to flood Stack Overflow, which is one of the places we go to fix the internet and fix anything techno- technology-wise? What happens when it floods Wikipedia and starts to flood right, the, right. you know, and starts editing one of the few beacons of light on, on the internet? And the problem is each time it does an update, there's all this excitement about GPT-4 and GPT-5 eventually. It does these, sna- it takes a snapshot of all the knowledge that it can gobble up on the internet at this point. What happens when it's flooded the the current internet with a bunch of garbage and then it goes to train again and it's training on garbage it's it's, it's yeah, yeah it gets recursive so it's training on its own errors yes essentially exactly. and uh microsoft is uh investing in the company right i don't think they've outright bought it 10 billion dollars <laughs> well but, they invested a uh, billion before that too so they're they're really going all in on they're this. all in okay so th- I, I guess it's on them right i mean it's on it, microsoft to say this is how we have to regulate this before we sabotage our own product and th- that's right and i i think microsoft you know they have their flaws and they're not perfect they're a big organization i i, I do have a little bit more confidence in them i think they've learned 
over the years about the importance of both self-regulation and even pushing the government to to regulate. They released, you know, they had a big release of their new Bing engine to journalists a couple of days ago, and it got a lot mm-hmm. of excitement. I, I stayed up and watched what, what people were excited about, but I did have concerns too. I mean, one of the things with this new search engine, in addition to a chat bot that's going to create lots of errors, um, is that it kind of pushes away all the content creators. So the Dave Ross is out there. Mm-hmm. It gobbles all your language. And if someone says, you know, do a news report as Dave <laughs> Ross would do, they've taken all of your content and not paid for it. And then they pushed you. They don't even put your link. They actually take the screen and you get pushed down and they just have the chatbot synthesis. Yeah. I've asked to write a couple of things in my style and it does a terrible job. <laughs> it's actually right. It's very good at putting in superficial markers of particular styles. It's very yeah. bad at actually writing something in someone's personal style. That's well, I mean, I, I'm 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 not that um, what parochial when it comes to you know claiming uh, making any claim to even having a style. But uh, what, what really you does worry me is the is the idea of seeding errors throughout the internet that could come back to they create build, they build up harm actually look at google's bard that was they lost a hundred billion dollars or at least that's at least the the claim in their stock price when their equivalent chatbot came out and said you know something false their advertisement actually even for the actual chatbot said that uh, one of the telescopes uh you know found the first exoplanet or whatever it wasn't it was wrong and some astronomers called it out and then all of a sudden this was right when microsoft released their new search engine and their stock price of alphabet which owns google dropped by a pretty significant amount because of uh, their air with their chatbot that they were advertising their yeah. chatbot with. Jevin West and Carl Bergstrom from the University of Washington Center for an Informed Public. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks so much. Great Dave. to see you as always. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.